Good evening, good day, greetings to everybody and welcome to the latest episode of the Indian Interest Podcast, the podcast in which we look at world events, important geopolitical events from the Indian perspective, not from the Chinese perspective, the Russian perspective, the American perspective, but the perspective of the Indian national interest. So welcome to all of you. Let us see, as always, who all is there with us. I can see Animish, Manav, Tarun, ex-KGB agent, Kirtan, Nilanch, Bot Gaming, Zhong Jina, Nikhilverse, Mayank, Sayan, Durga, Rhea Roy, Shri Balram Putin, GK, J. Dath, Suraj Thapa, Rishav Akshit, Tathagat, Saddam Hussein saying Ram Ram, Ram Ram Ji, <laughs> Jijin, Hodophile, Purobinath, Dakshit, Himanshu, Trupti, Aditya, Akshit, Tathagat, Rishav, Nikhilverse, Akshit, Sopnil, Varun, Manojit, Manav, The Supreme Cell, Divyang, Shreyas, Prashant, The Grave Walker, Typical Gamer, Simili, Me, Rayan, um, Alok Singh Chauhan, Superhero, Nikhilverse, Kishore, Shankar, Rajiv, Pranay, Harsh, Samudra Das, Aradhya, Sams, Sushmita, Varun, Gigi Prohit, Abhinav, Nirbhai, Darshan, Bhuvanendra, Prasad, and lots and lots of other people. Good evening, good day, all of you. Thank you so much for being on the podcast this fine evening over here and a fine day wherever you are. So what shall we talk about today? Uh, there's obviously lots that's happening in the world. Very important and interesting events are happening. We typically cover geopolitics on this podcast mostly, but let's start from a different angle today. Uh, so when was it? Was it yesterday? I think it was yesterday or day before yesterday that uh, India's Skyroot Aerospace launched its first uh, privately built uh, space rocket, a suborbital launch into space. It was launched uh, from the ISRO center in Sri Harikota. Uh, and it was a successful launch. I covered this launch uh, on Republic TV. I was I was there part of the uh, uh, part of the broadcast, the live broadcast. So let's talk a little bit about that before we dive deep into the geopolitical matters, which we will. So what is this? Why is this important? And why is it a big deal? So let me put on the screen some some uh, a tweet from Skyroot Aerospace. Let's do that. Let's put a tweet on the screen. So this was successful. So first of all, congratulations to Skyroot Aerospace. Very well done. The mission was successful. So this is a tweet that put out before the rocket was launched. I think it was yesterday it was launched, right? So uh, so let's take a look at what they have put out. Mission Praram, India's first private space launch, Skyroot Aerospace, and uh, some details about the launch. Yes, um, how, how high it will go and all that. And so on. So, so that's the that's what it was. And you can take a look at the tweet if you so wish. So, Skyroot Aerospace is is approximately four years old. It's a startup. Yeah, it has been founded by former engineers and scientists from ISRO. So, these guys know what they're doing. There are two co-founders, Pawan Kumar Chandana and Naga Kumar Naga Bharat Daka, and uh, they have raised about seventeen million dollars or so of total capital. Uh, they by the time uh, this launch was done, approximately seven, maybe less than $20 million in capital. So this is the first private company that has launched, uh, that has launched a rocket into, 
Well, essentially, it has touched space, right? It's the first Indian private company to do this. The first uh, overall private company, if I'm not mistaken, was SpaceX in the early 2000s, maybe in 2006, 2007, 8, some, somewhere there, if I if my memory serves me right, that they were able to uh, launch their first rocket, the Falcon 1, yes? So that was launched more than a decade and a half ago, more or less. That was a whole different rocket. So the total development cost of the SpaceX Falcon 1 was approximately a hundred million dollars. And the Indian company has done this in for, for a cost of less than 20 million dollars. But the Falcon 1 rocket was a whole different beast. It was a liquid-fueled rocket. It was a huge 21-meter rocket. It has it had two stages. It uh, its orbit was about more than 600 kilometers in height. And uh, the payload capacity was about uh, 180 kilograms. So that was a very different rocket. This, uh, um, the Indian rocket, the Vikram S, is a more modest rocket. It is a single stage rocket. It's about six meters tall. Yeah, it has a solid fuel. Um, its mass is about half a ton, 545 kilograms. Its speed is about Mach 5, five times the speed of light, uh, speed of sound, sorry, <laughs> which means it's a hypersonic. Uh, rocket which is good and it's capable of load, of taking a payload of 83 kilograms to 100 kilometers altitude right so that's what it was so uh, it was launched from the Shri satish Dhawan uh, space center in shri harikota uh, the space sector was opened up by the government of india to private players i think in 2020 or 2018 it's been a it's been a very short time yeah so uh, this is the first time a private company has launched a rocket it was a successful rocket launch wonderful great it's a great uh, it's a great event in india's space flight history uh, the space flight uh, the rocket was a, this flight was a suborbital space flight which means that the rocket reached the reached space uh, but the trajectory of the payload intersects the uh, atmosphere uh, at some point, which means that it does not complete one entire orbit around the Earth, and it does not reach escape velocity, which is the minimum speed needed to escape the gravitational influence of the Earth. And yet, it was a successful launch. It met all the objectives, and it's going to pave the way. It has see this launch tested and validated multiple subsystems and technologies during the pre-launch and post-launch phases. Uh, systems like the avionics systems, the telemetry, the tracking, the inertial measurement, the GPS, the onboard camera, data acquisition, power system, the propulsion, and lots of other things. So uh, this is a momentous occasion. It's a, it's a, you could say baby step, small step, and yet it, that's how you begin something. That's how you begin anything great. So this rocket was developed in just two years. It is a solid fuel propulsion. It is an entirely composite uh, structure, all carbon fi fiber, all composite rocket. The, the, the engine is also entirely Indian. So it's an entirely indigenous rocket. You can compare this rocket with essentially a ballistic missile. Yeah, that's the kind of thing it is, right? Uh, so in the future, Skyroot Aerospace is going to develop uh, a series of orbital space launch vehicles called the Vikram series, yeah? And these way, these rockets will have very quick assemblies. These rockets will be, uh, you could, they will be capable of assembling and launching these rockets within 24 hours from any launch site. And it, in the future, they will have interplanetary missions also. They are very ambitious, multi-orbit insertion. Uh, they are planning to develop a fully reusable vehicle and so on and so forth. Uh, so, you know, it's it's a very good step. There are lots of startups right now that have entered the space race in India. They are going to, uh, most of them will be, uh, will have 
engineers and scientists who have had some association with isro right and they are going to bolster india's space capabilities right until now we have had only one organization isro that did everything when it came to space from the perspective of india now we have private companies startups getting into it and they are going to be competing with each other with each other they are going to be helping isro develop various components so isro doesn't have to do everything on its own in the future maybe in 10 years time or so isro should be uh, handling only the heavy space launches you know human space flight and all that and the lighter space launches and you know other things could be taken care of by private players it's it's fantastic so that's the direction in which india is going and so this is a very good step in that direction so i would like to congratulate uh, skyroot aerospace for this achievement and uh, i wish them all the best this is just the beginning we have to go onward and upward and the sky is the limit the stars are the limit right uh so yes uh, i thought i should start with this this is a very important uh, development in india's space flight program like i have said the future is in space by the end of the 21st century the century we are living in the two or three nations that lead the world in space exploration will be the two or three nations that lead the world and control the world that's how it's going to be because when you develop space technologies it has all kinds of spin offs that enhances your overall technological uh, capability and base so it has military applications it has geopolitical applications and it has civilian applications also a lot of technologies that we use today started off as technologies developed for the space program in the us and in the ussr and then these things then eventually percolated down into the civilian domain so any nation that is a leader in space exploration and technology is going to be an overall leader militarily and geopolitically so india needs to ensure that we do not get left behind in this and the government has done a wonderful thing by opening up the space sector to private enterprise to private companies and we are seeing the the results of that so wonderful step forward and i would like to see it carry on and go forward and you know yeah so a great a great uh, a great uh, achievement by the the indian space industry now uh, let's talk about something closer to earth uh so what's happened in recent days i mean uh, we know what happened right in poland uh, let's let's see the news where's the news uh so what happened is that there was a missile landed in poland close to the border with ukraine it uh, ended up i think killing a couple of people in poland yeah here's a piece of news a report from the bbc this is uh, this is essentially the british perspective BBC is British propaganda. Please remember that. But I'm just putting it over here so that you get a perspective of what happened. So a missile uh, st- uh, struck farm machinery at a grain weighing facility. Uh, the blast happened about six kilometers from the border of uh, with Ukraine, and uh, there's a whole report based on that. I think it killed two people, two Polish citizens, and this is a fragment, a photograph of uh, a fragment of that missile. right so that's what happened and over here in the map we can see the location over here i don't know how to pronounce it przewodowodow in poland it's it's close to the ukraine border um and it seems like this was an s300 missile so initially it was alleged that this was a russian strike on polish territory that killed polish citizens let's put let's put something uh, a different report on the screen let's do that 
and obviously an attack on, on a NATO nation triggers certain articles of the NATO treaty. So this here is from the Eurasian Times. Attack on Poland, Warsaw triggers Article 4 of NATO treaty to convey convene consultation with allies. That's what Hungary says. And uh, yes, so there have been accusations and counter accusations. Yes. And obviously the Ukrainians claimed that this was done by Russia. Initially, everybody believed that this was done by Russia. But what was the truth? So let's put something else on the screen. So let's first understand what does the NATO charter say, the NATO treaty. So the NATO treaty uh, has a variety of articles, number uh, number of articles, article 1, 2, 3, 4, 5, and so, on, and so on. Let's take a look at article 4 and article 5. So this essentially was an attempt to start World War III, believe it or not. Believe it or not. Uh, Article 4 says, the parties will consult together whenever, in the opinion of one of them, the territorial integrity, political independence, or security of any of the parties is threatened. That is Article 4. Article 5 says, it's a long article, it says that the parties agree that an armed attack against one or more of them in Europe or North America shall be considered an attack against all of them. And if such an attack happens, each of them, blah, 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 will assist the party or parties so attacked by taking forthwith individually and so on and so forth, such action as it deems necessary, including the use of armed force to restore and maintain the security of the North Atlantic area. And so on. So, when an attack is when an attack happens when when somebody attacks a member of the nato uh, alliance it is first of all article 4 is triggered which says that they will all consult together and decide what's to be done and for article 5 is also triggered which means that an attack against any of them is an attack against the entirety of nato and everybody needs to get together all of nato the whole of the nato coalition has to get together and take whatever action is necessary including resorting to warfare to uh, restore and maintain security in the North Atlantic area. Yes. Now, uh, like I said, there were all these recriminations and allegations. So let's take a look at the recriminations and allegations. Uh, so then it emerged, <laughs> then it emerged that this was not a Russian missile. It was an S-300 missile, a Soviet-built missile. And Ukraine used to be part of the Soviet Union. And this originated in Ukraine. It was not fired from Russia. It was not launched from Russia. It was launched from Ukraine. Yes, it says it. Uh, so NATO immediately said that you know Russia is to blame, even though the Ukrainians have launched this missile. Uh, Ukraine is not to blame. It is Russia that is to blame for what happened. It is. It is all Russia's fault. And there was this meeting that that happened, in a so-called emergency meeting in Bali, during the G20 uh, event summit, in which uh, the NATO members who were present met there and they they issued this statement. Uh, and then it appears that Zelensky was not uh, willing to relent. So Mr. Zelensky, the, the current uh, leader of Ukraine, said that Kiev is not to blame for the Poland missile. He kept on insisting it was fired from Russia, even after NATO absolved Ukraine of all blame. And still this, this went on going. Uh, he said he had no doubts that Ukraine was not to blame for the missile strike. Yeah. And he had received, he said that he had received assurances from his top commanders that it was not our missile. That is what Mr. Zelensky said. And uh, once again, there is a, a there is this uh, report from the S uh, South China Morning Post, which again says the same thing. Zelensky has no doubt that Ukrainian missile did not cause blast in Poland. So he is saying that you know it's it's not our fault. Now, sooner or later, the truth emerges. So this is. Uh, what 
Christopher Miller, who is apparently a journalist, Ukraine correspondent, correspondent for the Financial Times, said, responding to Zelensky's remark tonight, remarks tonight, a NATO country diplomat told me, this is getting ridiculous. The Ukrainians are destroying our confidence in them. Nobody is blaming Ukraine and they are openly lying. This is more destructive than the missile. Yeah. So we don't know which NATO member nation said this, but a diplomat from one of the NATO members said this. And then there is a, there is more. I mean, the Western nations started understanding what's happening. So Benny Johnson, who is a, who is another journalist, or or, or he's a, he's got a show on Newsmax. He says that Ukraine start tried to start World War Three yesterday when a Ukrainian missile stuck and struck a NATO country and killed innocent civilians. Ukrainian leaders lied and blamed Russia. The Associated Press wrote it up unquestioningly. Ukrainian leaders lied and tried lied to try and initiate full-blown World War III. These are the facts. And he is asking questions. Who paid for the missile that struck Poland and killed innocent civilians? The American taxpayer did. And so on and so forth. So incredibly irresponsible. US open, official now admits that the blast in Poland was caused by a stray Ukrainian missile. And uh, so on. Yeah. So it's clear that the Ukrainians essentially tried to start World War Three, you know, by lying about this. And initially they claimed that it was all done by Russia. Uh, so yeah, it looked for a while that uh, something bad is going to happen. And this is uh, an article from uh, the, uh, the Foreign Policy magazine. Deaths in Poland are a warning for everyone. Errant missiles from Ukraine are a reminder that wars can always ac escalate accidentally. World War Three is just a, a mistake away, right? And that's a whole article about that. So that's the deal. That's what's uh, that's what's that's the biggest story that uh, that happened in the past week. The Ukrainians tried to start World War Three. They launched a missile at Poland, and, and they said. And later, NATO has tried to absolve them of blame by claiming that the Ukrainians were trying to were, had launched that missile in self-defense, and they were trying to intercept and shoot down a Russian missile. Yeah, let's take a look at the map and, and see if this story makes any sense, if this claim makes any sense. So let's take a look at the map and see where all these things happened. I mean, there's no, there's, they have to see the map at least once during this thing. So uh, let's take a look at the map. So this is Ukraine and to the west of Ukraine, you have Poland. And it's somewhere along this border, this boundary, common boundary, that this, this uh, incident happened. Okay, so it's over here that the incident happened. Let me deal with the lag. Give me a second. <clears throat> uh, let me know if there's a lag. Yeah, it looks like there's a lag. And it should be... There was a lag. It's good now. Just give me a second. Let me try and fix this problem. There seems to be something here. Okay. So it, it looks like whenever we talk about Ukraine, 
and this uh, entire matter there is a lag for some reason <laughs> uh okay we are back now yeah whenever we whenever we discuss ukraine there is a lag for some reason anyhow here's where we are so this is the ukraine poland border and it's closed it's over here that the entire matter this entire incident happened on the western side of ukraine and the lag is back Oh, it's over here that the the incident happened. Now, now a occupied uh, portion of Ukraine. Russian occupied portion of Ukraine. It's very far away. It's in the east of Ukraine. It's in the south and east of Ukraine. And the Poland border is really, really far from that region. So the question is, how does how does a Ukrainian missile that was launched to intercept a Russian missile end up in Poland? Right? I mean, the Russians would be firing a missile if they are from either the mainland Russia or the uh, occupied parts or the annexed territories of Ukraine, which is really far away from uh, the poland border the s400 the s300 missile system has a maximum range of 400 kilometers this 400 kilometers so let's say they launched uh, the missile hypothetically uh, let's say they launched it from uh, south of kherson so let's take a look at uh, the distance from here to here that's about almost 800 kilometers is i mean if you're trying to intercept a russian missile is it, it does it make any sense that it ends up in Ukraine? It, it, it ends up in Poland. So what I'm saying is that the claim that the Ukrainians launched a missile in self-defense doesn't wash. It doesn't make any sense logically. You take a look at the map, it doesn't make any sense from any logical perspective, from any strategic perspective. So uh so it's clear that there is something really wrong. Maybe the, it looks like the, the Ukrainians launched a missile to start World War III. It, that's what it looks like. And the question is, is Zelensky an autonomous player? Is he truly in control of his military? Does Do his military commanders report to him? Because the entire operation in Ukraine against Russia, this is a NATO operation. Ukraine's military capabilities were greatly degraded in the first couple of months of the Ukraine conflict. It's because NATO has been pushing in unlimited arms and ammunition and supply into Ukraine. That's why the Ukrainian armed forces are still functioning. Yes. So the <laughs> so this is essentially a nation. This is essentially a proxy war between Russia and NATO. Ukraine is the proxy. So this is the war between Russia and NATO. The question is, is Zelensky truly in control of his nation? Is he truly in genuine command of his armed forces? Or are the armed forces reporting to NATO directly? We know that Zelensky is an actor who has been essentially put in a role as a president. He's acting as the president. He has no political credentials. He has no political experience, nothing. He was parachuted like so some other leaders in the past have been parachuted into political positions and he became he was made the president and he's really good at acting i mean 
if you look at his IMDb profile and all, he's, he's got a significant amount of experience in acting. So he knows how to act. But is he really in control? So the question is, if the Ukrainians fired a missile deliberately into Poland, was it an accident or was it deliberate? And if it was deliberate, then who gave the order to do this? Is Zelensky the person who gave the order? Or is somebody else, somewhere else, sitting somewhere else, who gave the order? These are the questions. These are the questions we have to ask ourselves. We are not trying to demonize Ukraine or demonize NATO. We are asking logical questions. Let's not get emotional about these things. Think logically. Use the logic of strategy. Yeah, There have been times when there's been a lot of talk of World War III. And it's all come from the West. Most of it. Of course, the Russians also have made the statement that we have the weapons and you know we can take care of any exigencies and don't uh, cross certain lines and so on. So we are quite close. We we are there are there have been a couple of times when we have been more or less on the brink. Apparently, it looks like from here of World War Three, which is something we know we don't want. Now the question is: If Ukraine fired a missile into Poland territory. Ukraine is not a member of NATO. Poland is a member of NATO. Shouldn't Article 4 of NATO and Article 5 of NATO be used against Ukraine? I mean, that's what the NATO treaty says. So once it, it became clear that Ukraine had fired the missile, all talk of Article 4 and 5 of NATO disappeared, evaporated overnight. So that's the, the, <laughs> that's the thing that's happening over there. Yeah, Article 4 is no longer... In, in in play. Article 5 also is no longer in play because Ukraine is okay. Ukraine is exempt from any of these things. What about the two civilians who died in Poland? Who's going to give them justice? Apparently nobody. Doesn't matter. If it was a Russian missile, then they would need justice. But because it's a Ukrainian missile, there's no, we are, they don't need justice. It's just, uh, you know, collateral damage. It happens in war. Like you had millions of people who died in places like Iraq and Libya and whatever else. That's fine. That's that's entirely fine. Because those were not Russian missiles and Russian bombs. Yemen and so on. So, yeah, that, that's how it goes. right? So that is the situation in Ukraine. That's what happened. And uh, right now, it's uh, the temperatures seem to have come down. Yeah. Now, let's talk about Kherson. Because we spoke about Kherson last week. What happened, the, the thing we discussed last week was the Russian withdrawal from the West Bank of the Dniper River. Once again, let's go to the map and see what it was all about. Yes, so the, the greatest river in Ukraine is the Dniper. It is a river named after the great ancient Rigvedic goddess Danu. <laughs> we are seeing a lag all over again. Is the lag co- is it does it coincide with the map appearing on screen? How does it how does it work? Uh, come back to normal. Just give it a second. Should be back soon enough. Here we are. Here we are. It's fine. No lag. No lag. The Ukrainian map seems to be cursed. Somebody is saying. <laughs> uh, is there a lag? There's no lag. That's great. There's no lag. I, I get the feeling there's a lag. It says my connection is unstable. Okay, I think it's better. So let's take a look at the map. So, uh, and once again, there is a...
right? Looks like there's a little bit of lag. Yeah, there you go. There's a lag. And we should be getting back online soon enough. Come on. Zelensky is watching it live. Somebody else is watching. NATO is watching. It's fine. It's all in the public domain. Let me try a trick. Maybe I should not. Okay, in case you're able to see and hear me live, then I will continue. Yeah. It's good now. The video is lagging. My voice is fine. That's what I that's the that's the feedback I'm getting. Man, this is Let us see if it is back. All right, I th I, it may be working better now. So last time we discussed Okay, looks like uh, the lag is continuing for whatever reason. Uh, I apologize for the lag. I think it could be getting better. It is not getting better. I need to somehow fix this problem. Let's see if this fixes the problem. Give me a second. It's fine for now, it's all good. It's not good. I don't get it why I'm facing the problem. I'm using a cable. I'm not using Wi-Fi. I'm using a cable. And yet, we have this problem. Problemo. All right. All right. It's getting better, one hopes. It is fine now. And I hope it stays fine. I hope it stays stable. So the question is about Kherson. Kherson is the issue. So last time we discussed Kherson. So last time we discussed Kherson and the Russians withdrew from the west bank of the Dnieper River. Yeah, once again, it's only the voice that's coming in. This is a problem. This is a problem. Why is it like this? I just don't get it. I need to do something about this. Maybe get a new laptop. 
Ready to get something else? Okay, maybe I'll just keep talking and hopefully it did gets restored restored. I hope so. The connection is fairly good, it says. I need it to be perfect. That's the problem. And it can you see my image over here properly? Uh if I put the map on, it's fine. Yeah, you can hear me, I guess. I guess you can hear me. So you can see the map and I'll talk about it. So the Russians have withdrawn from the from the west bank of the of the Dnieper River in the Kherson Oblast, and they've given up one a certain portion, the western portion of this region. That's what they did, and we discussed this last week. I I don't know, I just I don't get it. It's blurred, the screen is slow. <sighs> yeah, it's low resolution. I can see that. I just don't get it. Okay, I guess I'll just uh, keep talking. I don't think the problem is with the map. It's with something else. It's with the internet connection. And I've got a cable and yet it's not working fine. So that's that's interesting. It's a 5G connection, by the way. <laughs> Someone's someone saying 5G. Uh Okay, be back. We're not back. All right, I'm I'm gonna continue. There's nothing I can do about this. I'm gonna continue with this thing. So last week, uh, we spoke about Kherson. The Russians withdrew from Kherson, and I had said that I would continue. Uh, I would revisit this topic this week, and uh, see what what is the situation. So I had given three scenarios i had given three scenarios about what could be happening the first scenario is that nato is actually winning nato is in the ascendancy nato is doing better the russians are losing and that's why the russians have been forced due to military action to cross the river and uh, evacuate the western part of the kherson province right that was option 1 
that was the first possibility the second possibility is that was that there could be uh, secret negotiations going on for a ceasefire you know for a ceasefire between nato and russia and they would perhaps consolidate the line of control along the the dnieper river and maybe one of the prerequisites for the ceasefire would be uh, for russia to withdraw from the west bank of the uh, dnieper river so that was the possible a second uh, the second possibility of what was happening and the third possibility is was that uh, this could have been a trap a nasty trap that the russians had set for nato so they would withdraw from that region and then uh, nato would try and occupy the city and then the russians would do something about it you know and uh, trap the ukrainian forces or the or the uh, nato forces in the city so these were the three possibilities so in case nato was winning and russia was losing and that's why the russians uh, withdrew then i said there was a possibility if that case is true if that scenario is true then the ukrainians would try and cross cross the river and try to move to make a move on crimea itself that's what uh, logically would happen now has that happened it's not happened the ukrainians have made no such move on crimea and they have made no attempt to cross the river and uh, you know try to retake uh, the remaining part of the kherson province ukraine has done no such thing so it means that uh, the uh, the first possibility could maybe uh, not be not be the case the second possibility is, uh, is, a, is that there are secret negotiations for a ceasefire uh, in which case you would see a ceasefire being announced sooner rather than later if there is a ceasefire that is being negotiated right in that case a ceasefire would be announced sooner rather than later and maybe it would be announced during the g20 summit uh, at at bali or maybe in the aftermath of the g20 summit in bali now we have already uh, seen that the G- g20 summit has because concluded the russian uh, foreign minister was given a cold shoulder in bali he was not treated treated very well which is what was to be expected but there has been no talk of a ceasefire there has been no announcement that a ceasefire is in the offing is being planned or maybe announced so once again it looks like we this this uh, the second possibility is still open that there could be a ceasefire but we have seen no announcements about that and the third possibility is that uh, this was a nasty trap for nato in which case you would see military action by the russians in the part of kherson province that they evacuated well once again <laughs> that has also not happened so right now we don't know what is happening right these three logical possibilities exist that's what i put forth and yet we have seen uh, no action i mean uh, we have seen no progress on these three fronts the ukrainians have not tried to cross the river and retake the par- remaining part of kherson they have not tried to make any move on crimea they have not tried to bombard crimea nothing of that sort has happened there has been no announcement or talk of a ceasefire again right so that has also not happened and there has been no russian action after the the withdrawal on the northern part of the kherson province the part that they evacuated so none of these three eventualities have eventuated so right now so right now we don't know what's happening is russia losing is is nato winning maybe not maybe not is a ceasefire happening we don't know is there a trap for nato that actually has been closed yeah that that uh, possibility is most more most mostly closed and mostly not going to happen so that is where we are 
that is the situation vis-a-vis Kherson. So we will keep an eye on this and we will look into it in the future, maybe in the next episode. So, that, so that's where we are. Now let me close the map and let's see if you are able to see me properly. I suppose you may not be able to see me properly. Maybe uh, maybe the resolution may not be great. Uh, something to do with my ISP or something to do with something else. Whatever it is, well, let us continue the show. There's nothing I can do about this at this point. Yep. So next, what do we talk about? Let's talk about, uh, yeah, let's talk about this. Uh, let me show you a piece of news, which is very interesting. Uh, let's put something else on the screen. A tweet from the New York Times and an article by the New York Times. One second. Where are we? Right. So uh, I know it's all blurred and pixelated. Restart my router, then the stream will die. Yeah, that's the problem, right? I it's just exasperating. But yeah, it's live, so I, there's nothing I can do. Let me try something once again, one more time. If it works, great. Looks like this is how it's going to go today. We will manage, I suppose. At least you can hear me. All right. So uh, this is an article by the New York Times. They are saying that uh, Ukraine has become a testing ground for state-of-the-art weapons and information systems that that Western political officials and military commanders predict could shape warfare for generations to come. Yeah? That's what they're saying. So Ukraine is a testing ground for weapons right now. That is how Western political officials and military commanders are viewing this conflict. It's a testing ground where we will test all the new weapons. It's been a long time that, that we had a proper war. So this is a great opportunity to, to, to test new weapons. We are witnessing uh, weapons like the loitering munitions, like the suicide kamikaze drones, being used in this war. We saw a little bit of that in the Armenia-Azerbaijan conflict, yes? And uh, we are also seeing this now being used on a larger scale in Ukraine. The Russians are using a variety of weapons. They've even acquired a bunch of Iranian uh, kamikaze drones called the Shahed 2 drone or whatever it's called, yes? So that's what they are using. And we are seeing a whole bunch of new weapons, new information systems, like they're saying, which are not visible, but they are being used. And these weapons could shape warfare for generations to come. So Ukraine is being used cynically as a testing ground. That's what's happening right now. Yeah, that's what's happening. And um, it's it's kind of similar to the situation a hundred more than about a hundred and about a hundred years ago. So in 1914, when the so-called First World War started. There was a whole bunch of weapons and tactics and strategies and etc. that ha- that existed but had never been used. So World War One became essentially a testing ground for a whole new bunch of weapon systems that had never been tested and never been proven in warfare before. So that's the kind of situation you're seeing in Ukraine right now. So yeah, so I just thought I'd put this across, you know, and. Uh, so Ukraine is being used in this manner, which is uh, deeply, deeply unfortunate. I cannot open the New York Times article because it's behind a behind a smoke screen, pay screen, paywall, whatever they call it. So I have not, I am not subscribed to the NYT. Why should I? So uh, I'll not open that. But this is the thing. 
so to to an extent this proxy war is is a test it's it's a test bed ukraine is a test bed for testing a variety of weapons it's it's so unfortunate that that uh, they see this war like that you know lives don't matter people's lives don't matter and now let's take a look at the the weather in in ukraine let's let's take a do, let's do that because we are deep in november, into november now it is almost the end of autumn and let's take a look at the weather in kiev what's the weather in kiev like here we are kiev city ukraine uh it's minus 1 degrees right now in kiev and uh, the entire week is predict- predicted to be snowy and the temperature is essentially sub zero uh it's giving us am temperatures 2 am 5 am 5 am etc on next saturday 2 pm it's going to be 3 degrees so yes winter is coming winter is coming and uh, it's going to get more intense it's not come yet winter is, hasn't come yet it's about to come and it's going to be a very cold season in europe there's this energy crisis or oh, people are telling me my video is blurry yes sir i am aware of the fact my video is blurry uh so there is this energy crisis that is impending in europe they were all dependent on ukrainian on on russian oil and gas mainly gas for powering uh for for powering the entire uh, continent uh, the entire region of western europe and this now that uh, the war is going on and they are not buying russian gas and they have destroyed the nord stream one of the pipelines and so on and so forth it's going to be a hard winter for europe and we are seeing winter already arriving in ukraine so that is the situation now let's move on to the next thing we had the g20 summit yes um the g20 summit uh, which just concluded this week it happened this week in bali indonesia yes and uh, let's look at it from the indian perspective so the prime minister the prime minister of india pm modi uh he met with a number of counterparts so let's put some images on the screen do we have some images so uh let me put some images on the screen of prime minister modi and his activities in bali so he met a bunch of world leaders the, G- the g20 is the is the grouping of the largest economies in the world the top the top uh, 20 or so economies of course you have people like uh, the leader the so called leader of europe mrs wander whatever her name is Ur- ursula whatever i i apologize i don't mean to sound disrespectful i cannot remember her surname ursula that that lady who is the president of the european union she was there uh, you also had mr tedros the the head of the who who was there you had the uh, un secretary general general who was there and so on and so forth so mr modi interacted with the world, number of world leaders he met uh, the us president mr biden as you can see here it is he is meeting with mr biden he also met uh, for the first time mr rishi sunak the newly appointed prime minister of the uk he met uh, the pm of australia mr albanese he met for the first time if i'm not mistaken the new uh, leader of italy italy uh madame giorgia meloni he met uh, the chancellor of germany mr olaf scholz he met uh, his good friend monsieur emmanuel macron the president of france he met the leader of singapore mr lee hsien lung the uh, lung and uh, he also met the uh, leader of spain mr sanchez 
and as you can see he also obviously met mr joko widodo the 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 leader of indonesia and obviously he met uh, mr biden over here and over here as well lots of interactions all interesting but the really interesting part is that he missed, he met for the first time in like since 2019 if i'm not mistaken he met and uh, with mr xi jinping the president of china so there it's uh, if i'm not mistaken the first time since 2019 that the two leaders have met the two leaders last met in october or november 2019 as part of various uh, uh, interactions and then obviously in 2020 we had the galwan crisis the first armed uh, the first clash between india and china in decades in which uh, lives were lost yes so uh, that was uh, there was a very uh, bad time for india china ties you know india and china ties deteriorated very bad very badly in that time and uh, mr modi and mr xi jinping have not appeared in public together and have have not uh, greeted each other since then so this is the first time it happened it happened uh, during uh, a dinner event if i'm not mistaken in ba- in in bali during the g20 summit it was a very brief interaction maybe a couple of minutes you know a handshake and some polite uh, exchange of uh, of words between the two leaders and obviously this was not something that happened spontaneously it was not something that happened by accident it was all carefully preplanned it was all choreographed the the diplomats of the two nations would have been in contact with each other and they would have planned this out in detail behind the screens all diplomacy happens in the dark all diplomacy happens behind the scenes it's only when things are confirmed that these matters are made public and my screen is frozen it it seems man this is so incredibly annoying should work should work but it's not working anyway let's keep talking because uh, there's nothing else <laughs> we can do uh so mr modi met with mr xi jinping this was obviously all preplanned and there was a there there was a brief interaction between the two leaders so the question is why did mr modi and mr xi jinping meet each other there was this major chill in the india china ties why was it necessary for the two leaders to make this public appearance of greeting each other and speaking for a couple of minutes why was it necessary it's because it's because of the current situation in the world right we have this emerging multipolar world order multipolarity is emerging and uh and if if the world wants to see what is multipolarity it's the emergence of multiple uh, centers of power in the world until now you had a unipolar world order the us is uh, currently still is the only superpower in the world china is an aspiring superpower but china's rise is no longer as rapid as they had hoped it to be yes and uh especially after the coronavirus 
pandemic, the crisis, the Chinese Belt and Road Initiative has kind of stalled. The economy is is stagnant. The population is aging. So China is not doing very well. It doesn't seem like it's going to. It's it's on track to become a superpower to replace and displace the U.S. as the world's only superpower. That's not happening. So, uh, and we have the Ukraine war, which has accelerated the multipolarity of the world. It's it has the Ukraine the Ukraine conflict has accelerated the multipolar the emerging multipolar world order, and we have the emergence of the BRICS coalition, and to some extent the SCO the Shanghai Cooperation Organization, and so on and so forth. So, if BRICS is to become attractive. An attractive alternative to the to the so-called uh, rules-based world order that is that is all led by the United States, then for BRICS to be viable, India and China will have to find ways to cooperate and collaborate. If India and China are are on very bad terms, then BRICS is a non-starter, and then there will be no emergence of a multipolar world order. India, China, Russia, and to some extent Iran also the major nations have to. Iran is still not part of BRICS. Obviously, they have applied to uh, applied for BRICS membership. Uh, uh, more than a dozen nations have applied for membership into BRICS. So BRICS has a great amount of potential. It has huge potential. But for BRICS to be viable, India and China f- need to find ways. To work together, the India and China will have their differences. I have said this a hundred times. I'll say it a hundred times more. India cannot trust China. Nobody can trust China. And as long as India and China have a shared border, the Tibet border, India and China simply cannot be on good terms because Tibet is has always been part of the Indosphere. It is territory that has been forcibly annexed by the Chinese. Yes, and as long as there's a common border between two enormously large nations, there's going to be friction. Even if the border is demarcated, the Chinese thus far have refused to even demarcate the border. But even if the border is, is let's say, demarcated, it's not going to uh, solve the problem. It's still not going to solve the, solve the problem. So as long as India and China have a shared border, India and China will remain adversaries. And because China and Russia also have a shared border, a very long shared border, that's why China and Russia also have to be seen as long-term adversaries. And yet, somehow, India, China, Russia have to find a way of making things work. Yes, there has to be at least visibly some kind of normalcy of the situation. Yeah, And maybe in the future, if the Chinese agree to demarcate the border between India and Tibet, then things could get somewhat better. So maybe, maybe this is a first step in the direction. At least the two leaders should be able to shake hands and greet each other. So that is the first step in that direction. That's what we are seeing. It doesn't mean that India and China are friends again. It doesn't mean that the relations are back to normal. It doesn't mean any of those things. It is just a show. A, a public uh, message to all the nations that wish to become part of BRICS that you know we can make this work. We 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 are we are uh, we would like to make this work, and we will we will take extra steps to make sure that BRICS is a is is a stable and viable organization, a coalition. So that is the reason why mostly most likely why the two leaders met. And that's about it. The other interesting thing <laughs> that happened uh, during the 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 BRICS the G uh, twenty summit is that uh, Joe Biden he called an emergency meeting of the G seven nations 
during during the uh, so the, the so called uh, what's it called the G20 summit so let's once again put that on the screen this was a meeting that joe biden called the americans called during the brics uh, during the S, during the g20 summit so you can see the united states if you want to know which are the major vassal state of states of the united states here we see it we have the lady from the eu uh, mrs ursula von der leyen if i that's i think what her name is we have the 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 leader of italy she doesn't look very happy here madame giorgia meloni you have uh, mr uh, olaf scholz of germany you have monsieur macron of france you have mr trudeau of canada we have uh, a very happy looking mr rishi sunak and we have some individuals that i am not able to identify we also have uh, prime minister kishida of japan and we have the mr blinken the of the us he's a us is a top ranking us official so this is the united states and its vassals major vassal states that met together uh it was an emergency meeting that was convened in response to the uh poland missile strike that was launched it turns out like i said by the ukrainians and yeah so that's that's what happened during the g20 summit now it's interesting that a person of indian origin put out a tweet such as this i typically do not want to talk about this but i think it's important that we uh that we uh, call this out so this is an individual called ashok ashok swain who's a professor of something or the other in sweden he says that biden called an emergency meeting at g20 india's so called vishwaguru modi is missing and uh, those who were saying it was a nato g7 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 meeting should ask why g7 was called to meet and why the matter was military in nature blah 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 if to include japan why not india many members of nato were not there how was it a nato meeting when nation and so on and so forth so let's understand what this meeting was about this was a meeting between to put it bluntly between the americans and their vassals okay this was essentially a nato plus meeting so it was it is a bunch of nato nations also you have a uh, the eu which is represented through the the lady ursula von der leyen you also have the japanese who are represented through their prime minister and so on you also have australia which is part of the five eyes coalition which is led by the americans and so on so this is a meeting between the americans and their tributaries their vassals india has nothing to do with this india is not at the command of the united states india is not at the beck and call of the superpower so which is why this tweet is an imbecilic tweet it is the tweet of an imbecile of an idiot but obviously this person is not an idiot he is a professor of something or the other this essentially tells you that this person is <laughs> this person is very much anti india i mean if you see this person's tweets it, it's it's a regular pattern and he obviously has a great deal of hatred dislike for the prime minister of india and we, that's what we are seeing over here so this meeting did not have anything to do with india india is not a member of nato india is not a member of the five eyes coalition india is not a puppet of the united states india is not at the command of the united states india is not at the beck and call of the united states these <laughs> the nations that are represented here the leaders that are represented here are the leaders of nations and organizations that are controlled and commanded by the united states of america look at their sheepish sheepish faces look at them all see their faces 
Only Rishi Sunak seems to be happy because he's a new, newly minted leader. So it, it will take him some, some time for him for that happiness to go away. And, and he will realize what he actually is doing. I'm sure he knows, but he's great, greatly happy to be elevated to the position where he can sit at the same table as all these leaders. So uh, that's that's uh, briefly about this matter. Yeah, um, this, this individual's very stupid and imbecilic tweet. Now, uh, let's go to uh, a different matter, <laughs> something that's slightly hilarious. So there was this very interesting incident in which uh, the uh, president of China met with the, the prime minister of Canada, Monsieur Trudeau. So yeah, this was the interaction. So this is a tweet by by Jack Posobiec, or whatever he's called. Uh, Chairman Xi dresses down Justin Trudeau like a junior employee for leaking their private conversation to the media. Trudeau can barely walk thereafter. So what happened is that President Xi and Prime Minister Trudeau had a meeting behind closed doors. And uh, it seems that Trudeau raised various issues such as uh, human rights and blah, 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 all that. And after the meeting was concluded, this the entire uh, proceedings of the meeting, whatever was, was discussed, was leaked within a couple of hours to the press. And uh, so this was clearly done by the Canadians. It was clearly done by the Canadians. Um, and uh, it, it is clear that uh, Xi Jinping, President Xi, was deeply, deeply unhappy with this. I mean, if you see the video... I'm not going to play the video here, but uh, President Xi, I have never, he was, he was smiling and talking politely, but I have <laughs> I have never seen Xi Jinping as animated as I have seen him in this in this brief video clip. He, he seemed genuinely exasperated with, with uh, Justin Trudeau. He was speaking in Chinese and he had an interpreter who was interpreting it for Justin Trudeau. He was, he was translating that into English. And then at, at some point, Xi Jinping says something, the guy, his translator starts translating and Justin Trudeau does not even wait for the guy to, to translate what Xi Jinping said. He starts saying something that in Canada, we do things differently. We believe in transparency and democracy and God knows what. The same platitudes that Justin Trudeau is known to spout. And after that, Xi Jinping was like, okay, handshake, let's move on. And while leaving the, 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 this uh, screen, Xi Jinping said, truly naive in Chinese. So he said that Justin Trudeau is truly naive. That's that. Those are the words that uh, Xi Jinping used for Justin Trudeau. That is, <laughs> so I've, I've never seen that sort of interaction before. I've seen lots of things, but I've never seen world one world leader calling another world leader truly naive on screen. Yeah. So so that's that's what happened. I mean, I am sure you all know that I am no big fan of the Chinese Communist Party and I am no big fan of Xi Jinping. But yeah, this was interesting. And he essentially put Justin Trudeau in his place. Justin Trudeau is, is, is you know, that, that uh, privileged boy whose, whose daddy was a prime minister and he was who, who was able to benefit from all the power network and all the contacts and all the everything that his father had. And that's how, and because he's part of the WEF, the World Economic Forum, he's promoted by them. He's one of those those uh, members that the WEF uses to penetrate the cabinets of various nations. So that's why he has become prime minister. Obviously, he has good hair. And the Canadians, I think one of the conditions for, for electing someone as leader in Canada is that that person needs to have good hair. 
Yeah. So yes, this he has a pretty face apparently. I, I mean, that's what some people say, and he's got good hair. So that's why he's the Prime Minister of Canada. On the other hand, Xi Jinping, whether you like him or not, he has worked really hard to to reach the position where he is in. So uh, it's clear that these two men, they have <laughs> there is a clear difference between them. One is a person who has accomplished. He was worked very hard to reach the position of world leader, and this another guy, this boy, the spoiled brat, you know, this rich, rich daddy's son who has become prime minister because he was offered this, he was given this position as a gift, essentially. That's how democracy works there. So it was interesting to see this. It's also interesting that, uh, well, I would also like to commend, <laughs> I would also like to commend Justin Trudeau for successfully, for becoming the first world leader to successfully uh, exasperate Xi Jinping to the, to the extent that he, he, you could see that he was kind of getting angry. You know, he was very agitated. I've never seen Xi Jinping like this. So on, on the other hand, it's, a, it's an achievement for Justin Trudeau to be able to achieve this. Good for him. Good for him. Anyhow, so that was the situation. And uh, one more interesting thing I would like to put on on the screen, which is this. So uh, Mr. Erdogan of Turkey was there in the G20 summit and he used the occasion to threaten Greece with war. It's something he has done before. So he repeated his threat against Greece, Greece during the G20 summit. Uh, the Turkish president warned the neighboring country, Greece, that he could invade it suddenly one night. <laughs> he said, we could invade you suddenly one night. Uh, what else? He's, he told reporters that Turkey can come suddenly one night and its neighbor Greece should mind its place and remember the history. So he's referring to the uh, history of the Ottoman occupation of Greece, which was something the Greeks don't... Uh, they they don't... Uh, it's, it's not a fond memory that the Greeks have, have of. So let's once again go to the map and show you some perspective about what we are talking. Where is Turkey? Where is Greece? In case you don't know, I... Okay, here's the map. In case you can see it, I'm not sure my screen is very visible, but we will continue. So here is Turkey. Turkey is mainly this peninsula of Anatolia, which used to be Greek in the past. And to the west of Turkey, we have the nation of Greece, which is over here, and it's a whole bunch of islands. Yes, the island of Cyprus is a Greek majority island, but it's half occupied, the northern part is occupied by Turkey. So, uh, and Turkey is a large military force and Mr. Erdogan has imperial ambitions. He obviously has the ambition of re reviving the Ottoman Empire, in, uh, Empire and becoming the Sultan of Turkey instead of the president. Yes. And uh, so he warned Greece. He threatened them with invasion. He said, um, he, um, you know, he could invade Greece one night. So, so why is he doing this? Why, why, did, why was Mr. Erdogan provoked into making this statement? Right, so he. This is a threat that he said that he made that we could invade you suddenly one night. Why did he do this? Things are changing in Europe. The real reason why Mr. Erdogan was provoked into making this threat on the G20 summit is because the Americans are now arming Greece, then and they are also arming Cyprus. So the Americans for the past 30, 35 years had this policy of not supplying Cyprus with weapons with arms, ammunition, weapons, no military aid, which is actually military sales. There's no aid. The Americans don't aid anybody. They sell stuff. So now they are selling weapons, weapon systems, etc., to Cyprus. 
And the Turks see this as a grave provocation because they essentially lay claim to the whole island of Cyprus. And the Americans are also now arming Greece. Greece and Turkey are mortal enemies. Look at history. Study some history. Yes. So Turkey is the more powerful nation. Greece is not a powerful nation. It is essentially propped up by NATO. It is, well, we know it's it's an it's a NATO member. Turkey is also a NATO member. Yeah. So America is now arming Greece, which the same way, I mean, see, if you look at it from Turkey's perspective, they feel about this the same way as India feels about the Americans arming Pakistan. That's how we have to look at it. Uh, India is a way more powerful nation than Pakistan. But when the Americans arm Pakistan, it is a direct, well, you could say a direct uh, threat to India, right? So similarly, when the Americans arm Greece, even though Greece is much more weaker militarily than Turkey, it is a direct hostile action against Turkey. So the Americans are arming Greece and arming Cyprus. And both are hostile to Turkey, which is why Mr. Erdogan essentially was provoked into making this extremely harsh and, uh, you know, aggressive statement at the G20 summit. So these are some things that, uh, that happened in the G20 summit. And obviously at the end of the summit, India has taken over the G20 presidency. So the next G20 summit will happen in India. So that's about the G20 summit. Now let's move our attention to the United States. What is happening in the US? Midterm elections. So we discussed this last week and we will discuss it today again. So what, now we know what's happened. Uh, what's happened is that the Republicans, let's talk about the Democrats first. Yeah, the Democrats have won the upper house, which is the Senate. Yes. So the Democrats have won 48 seats. The Republicans have won 49 seats. There are two independents. Those two independents are going to vote Democrat. So the Democrats are 50 to 49 up. Yes. And one seat has not been called yet. And and so they, they already have 50 seats that will vote in favor of the Democrats. Plus they have the vice president, uh, Madame Kamala Harris. So Kamala Harris, the vice president of the US, is the tiebreaker in, in, the, in the upper house, in the Senate. In case any vote is split or tied, the vice president has the right to, is required to step in and cast the tie-breaking vote. And she's a Democrat. So which means that the Democrats have won the upper house, the Senate of the US Congress. What about the House of Representatives, the lower house? Well, the Republicans have won the lower house. It's a wafer thin majority, but they have won the lower house. Yes. So Trump's party is in control of the lower house. Biden's party is in control of the presidency and the upper house. But because the Republicans control the lower house, they can stall any any legislation from happening. If the Democrats, if the if the uh, current administration wants to pass some legislation, the Republicans can stall it. They can prevent it from happening. Moreover, last week I had said that any any party that is in control of the lower house is in a position to launch investigations into all kinds of matters. And if the Republicans win the lower house, then they may possibly launch investigations into the conduct of Joe Biden and his family. That's what I had said last week. And within six days of my saying this, this is precisely what happened. The, the Republican Party has announced it is launching uh, investigations into the conduct of Joe Biden, into the the conduct of his family and, and his uh, all that you know so let me put that on the screen a tweet to that effect to that effect 
Here it is. Republicans announce an investigation into Joe Biden. And you can, uh, I'm not going to play the, the, the video, but you can check it out. So that's what's happening. And I put out, put out a short clip today as well about this. So the House has gone to the Republicans. The Senate has gone to the Democrats. And the other important news is that Mr. Trump has announced his candidacy for the 2024 presidential elections, right? So it doesn't mean he's going to stand for election. It means that he's announced his candidacy and he will now have to fight for the Republican ticket, his own party's ticket. So that's how it works in the US. Now, it's not going to be easy for Donald Trump to do this because where we are, where are we? So there's going to be opposition from within his own party. Yes. And let me show you what the, we are already seeing, seeing signs of this opposition. This is a tweet from Mike Pompeo, who was a very high ranking official during Donald Trump's presidency. I think he was the secretary of defense, secretary of uh, something like that. Yeah. The defense minister, more or less, the equivalent of the Indian defense minister. He is saying that we need more seriousness, less noise, and leaders who are looking forward, not staring in the rear view mirror claiming victimhood. This is a jibe aimed at Donald Trump, his former boss. So you are saying this, and we are going to see much more of this. Yeah, uh, we are going to. So it, it's not going to be very easy for Donald Trump to secure the Republican nomination for the 2024 presidential race. But he is the first person, if I'm not mistaken, to have announced this. And he is still a very influential and powerful figure in the Republican Party. Yeah. So that's what's happening. Now, who are the possible uh, uh, challengers to Donald Trump? We have Ron DeSantis, the current Florida governor, who is a young man who is in his early 40s. If you are in your early 40s, that's a very young age for a politician. So he's a young man early 40s. He has won a big victory in the Florida governor gubernatorial election. He's become the governor of Florida. Yep. So, so Ron DeSantis could possibly be Trump's top challenger for the Republican nomination for the 2024 presidential race. And Trump seems to be aware of it. Another name that's been put forward is the governor of Maryland, who uh, Larry Hogan, who could possibly be an outsider who could possibly challenge Trump. Uh, people have also spoken about uh, Nikki Haley, who was the US uh, ambassador to the United Nations Security Council during Trump's presidency. She's of Indian origin. She is the former governor of South Carolina, Nikki Haley. She could possibly, if she decides to throw her hat in the ring, she's uh, reasonably young as well. Yeah. So uh, these are the possibilities. Yes. And uh, so, so, Trump, it, it's not going to be an easy path for Trump. There's going to be plenty of challenges from within his own party. People are going to oppose him. People have ambitions of their own. There are lots of people who are ambitious. So it's not going to be an easy race for him. But he is still an extremely powerful and influential leader in the Republican Party. He would possibly still be in poll position. Now, the last time he was president, his vice president was Mike Pence. So this time there are... Uh, well, there are speculations about who could be the vice presidential pick, the running mate for Donald Trump. And one of the rumors is that uh, the governor of Iowa, uh, who could be the Kim Reynolds, could be the possible running mate for Donald Trump. So things are still evolving. It, it's still very early days for any of us to... Uh, to know what's going to happen yeah but see so so that's uh, what people are discussing now what about um so that's about trump yes but what about what else is happening so we know that trump wants to 
stand wants to uh, be the Republican candidate once again. He wants to become president again, once again. He has unfinished business in this matter. What about the Democrats? What's happening there? So let's take a look at what people are talking about there, about the Democrats. And this is incredible. I mean, this is <laughs> this is incredible. So this is a, a publication, a magazine, whatever you want to call it, called The Hill. It's all about US politics. They are saying, here's a game plan. Biden replaces Kamala Harris with Newsom and then resigns. He's talking about Gavin Newsom, who is the uh, governor of California. He's a Democrat. He's a reasonably young man in his 50s, if I'm not mistaken. So the Democrats are beginning to realize that, that Biden may post, most likely not be the right person, may not be in a position to run for president again in 2024. He's, he's quite old. He's an elderly man. He seems to not be completely cognitively functional. And Kamala Harris too is, is as gaff prone as Joe Biden. She has not covered herself in glory. I mean, she has become kind of a laughing stock. She doesn't, she doesn't seem to have any leadership qualities. She doesn't seem to have any understanding of the world, of world politics, of geopolitics, of, of her own local, you know, US politics and so on. She doesn't see, she doesn't display any, any great leadership potential, any great leadership abilities. So the Democrats are beginning to realize that if it is a Biden-Harris ticket once again in 2024, they may end up losing. So there are all these plans and options that are being put out. One of these plans is that Biden will replace Kamala Harris with Gavin Newsom. So he will sack Kamala Harris. This is all hypothetical. It's all potential. So, so the game plan possibly is that Biden, President Biden, should sack Kamala Harris as vice president because she is not, a, not doing well. Replace her with this guy, the current governor of California, Gavin Newsom. So Gavin Newsom becomes the new vice president and then Joe Biden resigns. So an unelected person becomes the president of the US and that person then can stand for the 2024 race. That's the kind of, that's the kind of game plan the Hill is putting out. And this is what they call democracy. Yeah. So yeah, there's, there's all this happening right now. It's very interesting to watch. Uh, the 2024 elections are going to be very important for the US, for the world. Yeah, who's going to be the next president of the US? I do not see Biden running for presidency again because he is, well, I don't I don't think I would explain why. And Kamala Harris, if she stands for president, it's going to be even worse for them. So they're looking for options. And here is one of the more outlandish game plans that I've seen. I mean, I, one does not expect to see such things published in a democratic country, but they are, they, see, that's the kind of thing that's happening. Yeah, So that's where we are vis-a-vis -vis the US uh, US politics, the, the forthcoming soon-to-be-announced uh, elections in uh, just a couple of years' time. Yeah. Now let's take, it, uh, take a look at one more thing. I mean, uh, so uh, let's, uh, let's uh, last week we spoke about Twitter. Let's talk about Twitter one more time, what's happening. So Elon Musk has a uh, has so a couple of days ago, Elon Musk put out a, uh, sent an email to his team in Twitter. This was the email. It was called a "Fork in the Road," uh, going forward to build a breakthrough Twitter 2.0 and to succeed in an increasingly competitive world. We need to be extremely hardcore. This will mean working long hours at high intensity. Only exceptional performance will constitute a passing grade. 
and so on and so forth. Twitter will be more engineering driven. No nonsense. All engineering, all programming, all coding, design and project product management will still be very important and report to me. But those writing great code will constitute the majority of our team and have the greatest sway at its heart. Twitter is a software and servers company. So I think this makes sense. If you are sure you want to be part of the new Twitter, please click yes on the link below. Anybody who has not done, done this by so-and-so time will receive three months of severance. Means you are out. Whatever decision you make, thank you very much, and so on and so forth. So what Elon Musk is doing is he is getting rid of all the non-performers in Twitter. Twitter has been bleeding money like anything. They were spending $400 per person per day on meals. Just imagine that. Twitter was paying from its own bank account $400 per person per day for meals. And 90% of its employees were not even coming to office. They were all working from home. And yet that's the kind of money Twitter was spending. So Elon Musk has cracked down on, on, on all these things. They had so many, they had this bloated staff of people who did nothing and were paid incredible amounts of money for doing nothing. Yeah. Um, so Elon Musk is... First of all, putting pressure on the employees to perform. You know, roll out Twitter blue by this weekend or you're out, that sort of thing. So that will show the guy, that will show Elon Musk who are the real performers in the team, who can really work under pressure and who are willing to work really, really hard. Those are the people who will retain. Everybody else will be out. And then he's put, he's put for this ultimatum. So I hear that lots and lots and lots of employees in Twitter have resigned because they are not capable of working hard. They don't have it in them and they are not even interested in working hard. So they will leave. And then Elon Musk will bring in real performers into the team. The staff will be cut down by drastically and only real core performance will be kept. So Twitter is changing very rapidly. Yes. And people were tweeting goodbye Twitter, RIP Twitter because so many people resigned. It's nothing. It doesn't make any difference to Twitter. It's going to keep functioning. It's going to keep doing well. And they're going to try out a whole bunch of features. I think the Twitter blue has been stopped for now <laughs> because it did not work very well. You know, there were lots of impersonations and parodies that were tweeting as real accounts and so on. So they will roll it out maybe by the end of this month or whenever else it comes back. But uh, Elon Musk knows how to run a company. He knows how to run a tight ship and he knows how to make money. So I predict that Twitter in the next two to five years could possibly become a trillion dollar company. You know, Elon Musk wants to create the everything app. One app, Twitter, which does everything, which can replace YouTube, which can replace WhatsApp, which can be a content creation thing, uh, uh, which can even replace Amazon. You know, one app that does everything. That's his overall ambition. He has not bought Twitter on a whim just because he was lazy and just because he was bored and he wanted a new toy to play with. No, that's not what he has done. He has a very clear vision of what he wants to do. So this could be a very interesting time for social media. It could uh, end up upsetting the entire Apple card of, uh, of, of social media. It could uh, it could end up, you know, eating up or, or pushing aside other companies into in, um, pushing them into extinction. I hear Facebook or, or Meta is not doing very well. They've invested billions of dollars into creating this 3D virtual, the, the, the metaverse and... Uh, I hear it's not doing very well, yeah. The so-called meta era is upon us. So Facebook these days is not doing very well. It's no longer as relevant as it used to be. It was a real behemoth in the past. Not so much now. We have other social media platforms as well and so on. Instagram belongs to, to, to meta as well. So Elon Musk wants to 
capture the space and, and turn Twitter into the one major behemoth in the space. So, uh, and and the interesting thing is that uh, lots of people are now rejoining Twitter. The Twitter is very active. Activity is, is at all-time all time highs. And now he has put up this poll. Let's go to Elon Musk's Twitter account. This is the poll he has put up. Yeah. Uh, where is it? Where is it? Where is it? Yes, this is the uh, this is the poll. Should we reinstate former President Trump? Yes or no? And um, I think the yes votes are leading right now, and uh, millions of people are voting. It's received more than twelve million votes. I think it's going to be the most. It's this poll is going to break all records of previous polls in terms of number of votes cast. And right now, this is the big buzz. There are seven hours left and people from anywhere in the world essentially can go and vote on this. And I'm sure they will filter out the non-US votes. They will have the, they will have the ability to do that. Um, so that's <laughs> what's happening. Uh, he has turned Twitter into this very buzzing place. And uh, lots of people are voting on this thing right now. So, yeah, he's saying that the Trump poll is getting more than approximately roughly 1 million votes per hour the order of 1 million votes per hour. It's fascinating to watch the Twitter Trump poll. So he has made Twitter very relevant. Uh, this this poll is, is a nice trick. You know, it it, it uh, serves to bring to create this whole buzz on Twitter. Uh, so yeah, that's where we are. Somebody is saying Twitter is bankrupt. Okay, Twitter is bankrupt. But well, Elon Musk has money and he knows how to make money and he knows how to turn a company around. He's done it multiple times. It's, he's a proven performer. So that's what it is. Yeah. So these are the things I wanted to talk about. There were other other issues as well, like the South, like the North Korean Hwasong missile test and so on. But uh, maybe we'll discuss it next time. So for today, thank you very much for participating in this. Thank you for, for thank you for your viewership. Sorry about the the screen issues. I will make sure it is resolved. So thank you very much once again. And until the next live stream, take care, and I will see you very soon. Thank you. Bye.